Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Ian Dosser retired as a Detective Chief Inspector with Victoria Police. He's an experienced investigator with a background of working in the major crime and homicide squads. Doss supervised the armed robbery, arson, Asian, stolen motor vehicle and racing livestock squads. He also worked in internal affairs, the police association and with the Royal PNG Constabulary. Doss was recognised for a successful fraud investigation and for his courage in an armed offender situation where three people were shot and a woman was taken hostage. Hi, Dawson. Welcome back to The Crime Couch. Glad to be here, Rochelle. Doss, how do you view your time working in the crime cars now? Was it a good way to hone your skills before doing DTS? Well, it certainly was. I mean, I think I'd done, let's say, six or seven years as a uniform member at Heidelberg. Heidelberg in them days was a uh, fairly rough area. It was all the Olympic village um, built for the Olympic Games. It was a low socioeconomic area and there were a lot of crooks lived in the area. So it was a good teething ground, if you want to use that word, for a detective. And as I said, I, I was six or seven years at Heidelberg. I was one of the sort of more senior members there and I, I was probably looked upon as a bit of a mentor. Then I went to the Heidelberg Crime Car Squad, which is the building next door. The crime cars are really a stepping stone to the CIB. And I spent fair time at the crime car squad, again, working in a crew situation. It was, uh, again, a learning experience because you were plain clothes and rather than going out tigging house burglaries or car squads, you got a job to investigate how you got it varied, but you were able to put 100% into, and let's just say it was a, a row of house burglaries in, in Ivanhoe or something, you were able to put the time and effort into that investigation. And it was from there, probably, that I was, uh, that I went to the uh, detective training school. I come back from detective training school, which in those days was certainly a, uh, was a three month hard course. And if you speak to the older detectives, it's probably one of the hardest courses that you'll do in the job. Nowadays, I, th- I think it's just a tick and flick attendance course. But yeah, I come back qualified at DTS and that basically got me into the CIB. And my first appointment, like everyone else, is, is nearly always gazetted to Russell Street CIB, which I was. Dulce, what makes a good detective? I, I think... You've got to have the dedication to be an investigator. You've got to have the determination to put an effort into investigating a crime. You've got to utilise all your resources. You can't go in there with a closed mind because you've got to look at all aspects. Again, if, if you catch a crook, my, my theory was and always has been, you've got to treat them fairly. You, you would treat them, albeit that they're a crook, they do have a mother, they do have a father, uh, it's just that they've uh, crossed the line and gone to the, the dark side, for want of a better term. But you treat them with the respect they deserve. And if you do that, 
you you'll gain their gain their respect. And I always say, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So, establishing a rapport with the the crook or the villain will generally get you the result you desire. In 1978, Doss, you were recognised for your alertness, intelligence and persistence in the successful investigation into a fraud matter against a government agency. Do you remember what happened? Yes, that was a situation where I had just been promoted to the CIB and I was working at Russell Street with Stan Anderson, now deceased, and a couple of other good members. And it was a situation, and I don't know how it uh, eventuated, but what was happening was driving school instructors were liaising with licensed testers at the licensed testing facility at Vic Roads, which was then the old motor registration branch. And in those days, to get your licence, you had to do a written test. And it was, a I think, about a five-page multiple questions, uh, and you just had to tick the right tick the right box to get the answer. What was happening was the driving school instructor, who was at the Carlton uh, Driving School, he was in cahoots with a licensed tester at Vic Roads. And what was happening was the test sheet, for want of a better term, would have a, a little pencil dot in the top right-hand corner of the box. So the the applicant, and they were all different nationalities and and a lot of them couldn't even speak English. They may be able to drive a car sufficient to pass the test but they couldn't read the the questionnaire to get right so they would go in and at, they would go and see the licensed tester on duty that day or let's call him Billy Smith and Billy Smith would give the person the um, marked questionnaire. So the, the applicant would then just go into the booth and he'd look for the square that had the little dot in the top. And it was only a very minor dot, it wasn't. And he would just tick that box. He would then take it back to the tester and the tester would mark it. And believe it or not, everyone got, let's say, 30 out of 30. So they passed the written part of the test and then they went for a drive. And as I said, normally they could drive. There wasn't an issue with that. So we're in a situation where we did a lot of work after hours at the MRB, Motor Registration Branch at that stage, going through a lot of records. It's a bit hard to explain, but going through a lot of records and looking for a certain nationality that was uh, familiar with the driving school instructor. Let's say he, he was Greek. We would identify them. You would go and interview that person. He, he would say, yes, Mr. Dossa, I got the the marked sheet, short version. And so we ended up, char- uh, they were all, albeit that they were part of the conspiracy, they were never charged. It was a situation where we just charged the driving instructor and the staff at the MRB. So again, that, that was a long, it was a long, and pre- it was a pretty boring job because after hours at the M- MRB going through all these records, yeah, it was, it was a pain in the bum. But the bottom line Good is... Good location, though, Carlton. Oh, yeah. What are you insinuating? <laughs> yep. But we got the villain, and, and that was good. And you were recognised then for, for your alertness, intelligence, and persistence. Well, as I said, it was a long, hard job, and I suppose if you look at intelligence and persistence was the key word. Mm-hmm. 
Doss, again in 1978, it was a big year for you because you were commended for courage and devotion to duty in a situation involving an armed offender where three persons were shot and a woman was taken hostage. Do you recall that event? I do. I don't have an intimate knowledge of it because I, I do remember it was a Sunday night and I was at home. We had friends around for dinner and the phone rings and, and there was a siege situation, for want of a better term, at Panton Hills. The offender was in the house and, he'd, as you know, he'd, he'd shot three people and it was a matter of us coaxing him out. And back in those days, you didn't have trained negotiators. It was a situation where you know, bluffing him, I was going to say, bullshit baffles brains. But I, I do remember, if you, if you know Panton Hills, it's right up in the middle of whoop whoops, in the bush. And I remember it was dark was at night and I'm, I'm walking up to the or crawling up to the house and I've got a white shirt on and I think gee I just why don't I put a red dot on it and use it as a target but yeah took the shirt off and, and the bottom line was that uh, we were able to negotiate with the offender successfully ended the situation and I, I don't believe there was any heroics or anything in that it was just a job that the senior man at the time, who's a fairly infamous detective chief inspector, he probably wrote it up so that he could get one for himself. And that's that's my thoughts, but yeah. Doss, <laughs> what does it mean to be acknowledged officially for what you've done? Like, you, you know, in that year in 78, you were officially recognised twice. What does it mean? Because a lot of members poo-poo those sorts of achievements, don't they? Well, they certainly do, and that incident at Pan Hill, so I just regarded that as a job that was done, you know, and again, the fraud matter, that was a long and hard job. It's always good to be recognised for your duties, whether whether it be a commendatory entry or, or a letter of recognition. You always, you always feel good when the boss comes up to you and says, good job, Doss, or do 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 But these days, I think, in my opinion, Commendatory entries are handed out uh, pretty willy-nilly. And you always use the argument, uh, if the police horse gendarme can get a commendatory entry, anyone can. <laughs> That's my philosophy. Toss, I agree with that. How difficult was it to work in internal affairs, which you did do, after being at the cutting edge of investigations? I mean, how difficult is that? Was that an easy decision to make? Uh, initially, I went to, it, it was then uh, IID, and we were based in East Melbourne. I went there on promotion uh, to the rank of inspector, and I, I worked there for quite some time. My boss at the time was uh, Tom, Tom McGrath. Ronnie Blackshaw was on, on the crew, and we were dealing with everyday complaints uh, raised by members of the public, and to, a lot of those complaints were... I'll use the term shit complaints that shouldn't have been raised. They could have been clipped at the bud by, let's say, the supervisor at the time, having a talk to the complainant, appeasing him and saying, well, yes, you know, maybe uh, Rochelle was a bit rude to you, but, you know, I'll I'll address that issue. Instead of it mounting into a full-scale IID investigation, which is very time-consuming, and generally get the same result. Yeah, my time at IID was good. We had, again, basically we're only dealing with the, the minor complaints and smaller type discipline offences. It causes me to ask you the question, what do you think causes corruption in the job? Like, And why do you think people go down that narrow goat path? That's a hard, uh, a hard question to answer, but basically, in, in my thoughts, uh, corruption 
there's always in in the high profile squads you know I say that the robbers the majors the drug squad they're the, they're the main three that jump out when you're dealing with professional criminals and you're dealing with jobs that have uh, large amounts of money be it either you know let's say a drug dealer who's selling drugs and when you do a raid you might find some drugs and you might find a substantial quantity of money under the bed in the drawer there's always the temptation there for persons to think well they won't miss a thousand bucks it might just fall into my pocket the element is 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 always there but again a lot of that then falls back on the sub officer in charge of the crew a to know his crew to be to be able to watch those situations and I think nowadays if there's money involved in anything it's nearly always videoed and counted in front of the crook's presence and stuff like that which stops corruption you know you, you have the prime example and we can talk about uh, Kevin Hicks the drug squad Kevin was one of my uh, crew in the major crime squad I had no reason then to doubt his honesty albeit that he probably was a little bit shifty but uh, I didn't pick it up and he gave me no indication that uh, he was corrupt. It's only when command moved him from the major crime squad into the drug squad and put him in charge of the property at Atwood. And it's been described in a couple of instances. It's like putting a pedophile in charge of a school camp and uh, or a... Um, I can't think of the other one, but putting in a chocolate lover in, in, in a chocolate shop. The temptation was there. It was always there. I think at the drug squad, there were a lot of uh, issues with that Atwood. And, and it's not just Hicksy. You look at Wayne Strawn. He, he was convicted of dealing in drugs from the drug squad. The temptation is always there, but I think what it, it reverts back to, it, it reverts back to the individual as am I an honest individual? Am I prepared to take this corruption with a view of getting caught? What would it do to my family? You know, what would my friends and what would my parents think of me if I was charged with corruption? I, I just, I, I don't like, well, I don't like corruption. That's obvious by uh, being at IID and subsequently on my return from New Guinea, I can always remember I got a phone call from Tom McGrath, who, who I know and respect well. Tom said to me, Doss, how would you like to go to ISU? ISU is, is the internal security unit which deals with m the more criminal aspect and malfeasance of members. And I said, oh, yeah, let me go home and talk to Liz. And he said, yeah, you can go home and talk to Liz, but you start there Monday. So I started there at Monday, uh, ISU. Uh, we were basically a covert premises, covert operation, and we were dealing with corruption, criminality of members of the force. One of the jobs that I had whilst I was at uh, at ISU was, I think myself and probably about 10 other members were uh, seconded to, it was then referred to as Operation Sentinel, which related to the theft of documents from the drug squad. We had, it was a rather lengthy inquiry, and you're dealing with coppers for one, there's always the reluctance for them, A, to talk, B, to certainly dob in members, uh, and then you're dealing with crooks, and the crooks you were dealing with were generally an association, or had an association with the 
crook coppice. So you, you, the good thing about it, uh, it was like bashing your head against a brick wall. The good thing about it was it, the pain stopped when you stopped hitting your head. But we 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 done that. Very hard, I'd imagine, also to investigate members who understand criminal proceedings and who are very au fait with the law. I always find that it's very difficult and it must be a real stick in your claw to have to deal with members because it's such a small minority, but they have such infamy, don't they? Well, they they do. And, and you know, I mean, when you when I was at IOD and you're dealing with a uniform member that, let, for argument's sake, done something wrong that was certainly not criminal, that, you know, if you sat down and explained the scenario to them, they generally end up saying, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that or I should have did this. I stuffed up. Yeah, I stuffed up. But a lot, a lot of them... Don't get around to saying that. They just reckon you're a mongrel. But when you're at ISU and you're dealing with crooked coppers, as you said, who know the law and the procedures, they're, they're smart enough not to answer the questions or, or, or to send you off on a wild goose chase. So, again, you've got to treat whether they're uh, members of the force. They're still crooks, but they're only crooks in uniform. Again, you've got to earn the respect of those coppers. And, I, you know, I think I had the respect of most of the coppers that I dealt with. Let's talk about your time with the Royal PNG Constabulary. This was a really fascinating choice to work in PNG. It was a two-year leave without pay position. So what was your motivation for joining the PNG Constabulary? It was a government Ausaid project. They put out expressions of interest to, to members of the force that would be interested in going over and working with the, the RPNGPC, Royal Papua New Guinea Police Constabulary. And there were quite many, many applicants put in for it. We all went through a selection process and a board. I think at the time that we went over there, there was probably, I'm just trying to think, there's probably 12 other serving members and at that stage the force was crying manpower shortage so they wouldn't allow us to go on secondment they said if you want to go to New Guinea you leave take leave without pay so there were some issues here that I thought mate a change in New Guinea would do us good so obviously come home discussed it with Liz and we said yeah we'll go went through the process and they said right you start New Guinea first of June or something so I do remember, and I think, let's say there's 12 of us, and I've named a few of them, and they're all good blokes. We got on an Air New Guinea plane at Tullamarine to go to Port Moresby. The plane was pretty empty, and by the time we left the plane, the fridge was pretty empty too. <laughs> so we drank the plane dry. We arrived at Jackson Airport in Port Moresby, and... I couldn't believe my eyes when I got off the plane, and I don't know whether you know buoy or beetle nut. It's a it's a it's a nut that the nationals chew. It makes all their lips red, makes all their teeth fall out, and and they they chew it and then just spit it out. And when I was walking from the plane to the the terminal, there's all these red spots, and I thought, geez, been a big fight here last night, you know, and I couldn't believe it, but. Chewing buoy or beetle nut, as it's called now, it, it's like you and I having it. Well, not that I smoke, but it's like someone having a smoke. It was it was quite common, even amongst the constabulary. 
I, I remember when I was at PNG, the PPC, the Provisional Police Commander, which was equivalent to a superintendent where I worked, wouldn't allow his troops to uh, chew buoy. But when I'd go up to his office for something, he'd be sitting there, his lips would be red, his teeth would be red, and he'd be chewing on the old buoy. It's not, <laughs> it's not do as I uh, do, do as I say. But, yep, it was good. I really enjoyed our time in New Guinea. We had, I think it was either a week or two weeks, staying in the Travelodge Hotel in Moresby where we were given a crash course on pidgin English and a crash course on you know, the, uh, the constabulary itself. And then we were let loose. I uh, was said, oh, you're going to Madang. I, I didn't know where Madang was. So I had a look at the map and I thought, oh, geez, I don't want to go to Madang. It's so far away. It's nothing there. I want to go to Moresby where the action is. But so happy that I got Madang. It was a, it was a beautiful place. Probably described as a little bit like Bali. Uh, I think at that stage, you know, there was a population of about 30,000 people. But it was much better than uh, Moresby, Lay, Garoka or Hagen, where a lot of the other advisors were sent. They were very envious of me. And when I look back in uh, retrospect, I say, mate, I'm so bloody happy I got my dang. We enjoyed it. Doss, what was the Royal PNG Constabulary's attitude to Western policing concepts? That's a, well, it's not a hard one to answer, but you're dealing with a police force over there that's 20, 30 years behind. And you're going over there and you're trying to enforce uh, your standards on a, on a country or on members that are 20, 30 years behind. I mean, the men, the men themselves didn't have paper. They didn't have pencils. They didn't have carbon paper. They didn't have petrol to put in their cars. They got one uniform and that probably lasted them for 10 years. If you got a big ink spilled on it, that was your uniform. You copped it. So, I mean... When come back for holidays, we, we had to leave the country every six months as part of our visa. I'd come back here, well, I was going to say I'd go to the robbers or something wherever I was stationed and I'd get all the unused carbon paper, all the unused pencils and biros, any notepads that, you know, that were out of use or we could use, you'd take them back and you'd give it to the, the constabulary back there and they thought it was Christmas. Because you know? they were using uh, old typewriters and they were using typewriter ribbons that had no ink on them. Normal typewriter ribbon is either black with a red. These were just transparent because they'd been used that much. They didn't know what carbon paper was. They didn't have access to photocopying machines. And as I said before, they had no access to petrol. The place I was at had uh, quite a few vehicles, but no money to buy petrol. At Madang, there was a water police section and they had a big 30-foot catamaran boat. And the two years that I was there, probably went out on it twice and that was because uh, I bought the petrol but the boat never went out never left the yard what an extraordinary experience though like I'd imagine from a life point of view it would have been extraordinary what was your or well, apart from those basic things like <laughs> writing implements what were your biggest challenges well let's just say Madang probably had no workforce of let's say 60 members of the force they were there in, in various sections. As I said, there was water police prosecutions. They had a dog squad with six dogs. They had a training session. They had a general duties. They had a CIB. You obviously couldn't concentrate. My role was an overall role in relation to, to the staff. You couldn't uh, ideally train everyone. So what you would do is with the CIB, you'd pick out a couple of members that you thought had potential and you'd work on them and you'd 
not totally to the disregard of others, but you could identify them as keen, energetic, wanted to learn, so you concentrated on them. The main issue that I, I feel the constabulary were after, they weren't really interested in, in the training aspect of us to them. They just wanted the money that the government was going to give because PNG, uh, it's probably an overall, but it is so corrupt. You know, uh, the, the police minister in New Guinea had a conviction for rape. The PPC, the police commander uh, that I worked sort of hand in hand with, I, I found him to be, I can't say corrupt, but he wasn't a good man manager. Uh, and I, yeah, there were many instances there where uh, I, I would have not, I'd have verbal arguments with him over the management or the running of the station, albeit it was his station. I could only advise him as to what to do. If he didn't take my advice, well, so be it. You suffer the consequences. But yeah, I ended up, well, we ended up not on friendly terms for want of a better term because you know, I'm probably saying he was that close to being a crook. It didn't matter. Incredible life experience. Doss, you uh, basically worked at the TPA and uh, we're not going to have a, a lot of time more now, but uh, you also ha- have been conducting private investigations and you've also been appointed as a bail justice. So let's finally just discuss what's next for you, Doss. All right, well, I'll just deal with the TPA bit. Um, I was in New Guinea from 90, 90, well, 93 to 95, two years, and I was over there with a, a bloke called Bob Ryan. Uh, Bob worked at Lay, uh, and when he came back, uh, he worked at the association as the manager discipline, and uh, he basically recruited me or gave me an offer too good to refuse. So, yeah, I left the left the force and went to the TPA. I was a discipline advocate there for 10 years, and you know, a discipline advocate is just dealing with uh, members of the force that have got into some form of trouble, be it... Uh, minor or uh, or whatever, we were there to advise them. We didn't act for them on criminal matters. They were, were referred to the, the association's lawyers. But there are a lot of issues. Uh, LEAP, accessing LEAP back in the early days was, was a big issue. Coppers were doing it, not realising the consequences. O5s were another big issue. You know, they'd get charged with O5, they'd go to the criminal court and let's say 500 bucks in licence cancelled for 12 months, they automatically got a discipline offence out of that. My, my theory is, uh, is or was, if I can save you a job, that's a bonus. You, you might get demoted, you might get transferred to Russell Street, but you got the job, and that's a bonus. We moved from Melbourne uh, to Bright. I then decided, because back in the early days at Collingwood and Fitzroy, if you were, had to bail a crook, you always had to ring up the, the same justice of the peace, you know. You'd ring him up and he'd be saying, oh, three o'clock in the morning, you say, Jim, can you come down and do a bail? And and wore a bit thin with us and, and with the JP because, you know, they, they were getting flogged. So I thought, I saw an advertisement for uh, Department of Justice seeking expressions of interest for people to become bail justice. Yeah, I put in, went through the, and it was a rigorous process and, I think they were a little bit reluctant because I was an ex-copper. Uh, they wanted someone a little bit independent, but I must have smoothed them over or wooed them. So I got appointed as a bail justice and now do bail justice work. I've probably, yeah, close to eight, nine years been doing that. And back a couple of years ago, 
where I'm living, uh, the, the only jobs I could go to were at Wangaratta and Wodonga. And I can uh, speak that uh, every bail application, because the courts close at three o'clock, they say, oh, but get a bail justice, get a bail justice. So all your jobs were in the middle of the night. And you, you had to travel to either Wangaratta or Wodonga. You didn't get any reimbursement for mileage. And it was a volunteer unpaid position. But the issue that I face with travelling to Wodonga and Wangaratta, up here, there's always bloody deer and kangaroo on the roads in the middle of the night. But just meant you have to slow down. Yeah, so I'm, I'm still an active bail justice, albeit now that probably in the last 18 months, DOJ have caught up with the times and we're now able to do bail applications using video facility, which means you still got to get up at three in the morning, but I just walk from the bedroom, walk up to the office and turn on the computer. You can do it then, so uh, I'm happy. Well, Doss, once again, it's been a delight speaking with you today. It's been a comprehensive interview and all the best with your continued life in retirement. Thank you. And thanks for sitting with me today on The Crime Couch. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch. 